I sold my company in July of 2019, if you rolled forward seven months when you started to see massive lift off, these companies' valuations then skyrocketed. You know, 11 years and then to see a deal fall apart, that was a real low moment for me, the worst time uh, imaginable. In my hotel room in Hong Kong, there and then I just cold called him. <laughs> um, name and show. Yeah. <laughs> driven by understanding systems and disruptive change, trying to work on something which passes a toothbrush test. Big enough global opportunity. Everything is always timing. 10K from a random guy I met at the top of the gherkin. <laughs> and then I got a bout of terrible headaches and I couldn't get out of bed for 10 days. In the last year of running my company, I was probably taking 30 ibuprofen a month. My body was just like, mm. my big, Realization 11 years after running Metail was that. My next guest is the exited founder of Metail, now co founder of Capital Angel Network and Extend Ventures. He's also an advisor and investor in over five other businesses. Tom Adeyula, welcome to Strategy and Tragedy. Thank you for having me. All right, first question What is it that makes half Norwegian, half Nigerian men so successful? Well, I don't know, because um, the, the weird thing is. As far as I know, there's two of us, <laughs> and we both went to the same university at the same time. One pretended to be in IT on TV, and the other one is sitting right here. So um, that was Richard Ayoade um, from the IT crowd. Uh, and we were in the same year at Cambridge. He was at another college in a, a comedy a duo with a guy who I went to university with in my college, who's now also super famous, um, as in John Oliver, um, who has his own program on the US TV. Amazing, that is hilarious. I love that fun fact. It just really stood out to me when I read that you were half Nigerian, half Norwegian. So it's just like all the ends that make it into <laughs> your ancestry. There. The flags are next to each other as well when you go through the list. Oh, that's helpful, that's <laughs> handy. I have to ask, just because I love weird and wonderful things, with you and Richard Ayuadi, is it the same mum, dad? Yes. Oh my it's God, exactly that's the same. What a coincidence. Same but we've actually never met each other directly, um, except my wife has met him and had a, a conversation about a project in the past, but I've never met Richard directly. So but you that went to the same university. Come. Yeah, that time will come. And he also made a film called The Double, which I thought was quite funny. It's about somebody meeting their doppelganger, and in some respects, I'm possibly that for him. That was hilarious. I just, I feel like I could very easily do the whole podcast episode just talking about you and Richard Ayuadi. I find that fascinating, but we will move on. So <laughs> one of your, you've obviously had such great impact. You've had such an amazing career. So I'm almost like, I don't even know where to start, but we'll start off with Metail, which I feel like has kind of had more of the, the headlines in your track record so far. So you founded Metal, which was a virtual try-on product, which was acquired back in 2019 yes. for 12 million, is that correct? Yeah. And that was by your lead investor, which we'll get into. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So yes, so I, I founded the company in 2008, um, uh, you know, probably the worst time uh, imaginable. Um, I had been working for a company. I'd worked for five different startups before starting wow. Metail. And in my last company, I was uh, running gaming product development for a company called Inspired. They were in the process of being bought um, by Icelandic banks in 2007. Um, that my bosses were gonna become wealthy. I was gonna make some options. So it felt like a good time uh, to go off and, and start something. Mm -hmm. uh, a few of them had committed to sort of being my early investor in the business, but this was Icelandic banks. So as we know, in 2007, 
that the world collapsed from a credit and crisis perspective. Mm. Um, so I think over the course of the next year, that company's share price collapsed by about 99%. Wow. Um, so uh, that opportunity for investment into my company didn't come, but I think I'd got to a point where with Metel, the idea being around uh, being able to virtually try on clothes and see how they fit and trying to solve that online clothing fit problem, it felt as big enough idea um, with a big enough and good enough way of trying to solve it in terms of using computer vision that I felt that I was going to commit and jump in feet first mm. to start it anyway, 2008. Before we go further, so just hang fire there for a second. So I'm curious, just on a really practical level, you had that funding opportunity fall through on both the options that you had in the company because the share price nosedived and the previous bosses you had who yeah. were maybe going to find... So what did you do instead then? Well, so I, I mean, I, I took this sort of rather risky um, option just to go jump anyway. I mean, I, I, so I quit my job at the end of 2007, started on the sort of business plan day one of 2008. Um, the only thing I had as commitment was that I would continue consulting for my old business for a couple of days right. a week. So it was ostensibly a rash decision, really. I didn't really have any, like visibility to sources of funding um but i felt that the idea was interesting and the time was potentially now mm. like weirdly i my boss from inspired where i was at he had worked for a company called boo.com back in 98 which had tried every idea in fashion technology back then and had spent 150 million i think in like 12 months and gone from boom to bust um but I, I felt that there was something really interesting about computer vision and some interesting research technology I'd seen up in Cambridge that meant that it was now an interesting time to do something. And I think I just, you know, just thought some sort of funding might come from somewhere. Um, that naive and, optimism, yeah, the naive, right? <laughs> the naive optimism. And I think it was only really like I, I ended up meeting different people, going, like, tr reaching out to lots of different types. And I had one meeting with um, an, an exec at MTV where after that meeting, he and a colleague sort of made an approach to, to invest in the company, um, you know, the company which was a PowerPoint presentation at the time. Um, the terms were horrible, but they were sort of proposing to put 100 grand in wow. and off the back of that i felt okay i think i have something mm. which is worth carrying on for mm. and this was probably about three or four months into my wow. journey of of figuring out how to not spend all my money and and end up on the streets um and i think off the back of that i then made the decision to like get a bank loan for 10k wow. um and at that time if you're getting a bank loan you can only really do it to buy something you can't do it to invest in something so you have to pretend that you're trying to buy a car and that's why you need the 10k which is really bizarre in my head um so i did that i then ended up getting 10k from an aunt 10k from an old school friend 10k from a university friend 10k from an old boss and 10k from a random guy i met at the top of the gherkin <laughs> so that was like my first bit of capital so we'll what, just leave that last one there that yeah. sounds like the most interesting investor <laughs> and that guy then three or four years later uh came to work for me wow. and then ended up moving to singapore for me wow um sounds like a great guy a great guy to cross yeah. paths with at the top of the gherkin <laughs> at the top of the gherkin <laughs> I love that. 
<laughs> I love that you remember as well, like the breakdown and where each kind of 10K come from. So it's really interesting. So it's kind of like, you know, one thing unlock the next. And that conversation you had with the MTV exec you mentioned before was a validation point. Yeah, and a big then. confidence booster nice. of like there's something here worth trying to like yeah. continue with. Amazing. And just also sticking with this kind of the early days for a second as well. You mentioned that it just kind of felt like the right time. Was that for you personally in terms of your life situation or was it in terms of the wider market and what was going on or indeed both things? Yeah, I think definitely, I think more for me. So mm. I would say that actually coming out of university, I'd always thought that I was like a number two um uh you know number two to Richard yeah well number two exactly <laughs> uh, definitely at, at that point and uh that sense of like being the guy who is the executor not the sort of like front man mm. um vision person and I'd worked on a internet idea coming out of university with a friend who was a real like ideas person like but also the um attention span of a goldfish <laughs> uh, and I was the person sort of like pulling it all together mm. so I thought I thought that was going to be my role potentially through my career and then I think in my last job before starting Nita what I'd done there is I'd gone from being the the clever guy working for senior management on strategy to being given the task to roll out a product and end up running that and growing that from nothing to 70% of the UK market and then taking it into international and building out big teams. So doing that had given me the confidence of like, no, I'm more than that. Mm. I, I, I have the ability not just to think things through strategically, mm. but also to actually execute. Mm. Um, and that was the thing that then gave me the confidence to think, well, actually I can go out and build something myself. Because like going back to all the way, like both my parents were immigrants to this country from Norway and from Nigeria and I didn't really have any role models back through um, uh, each of those families in terms of like building businesses so it didn't feel like a natural mm. pathway for me until I I saw my ability to basically generate a whole division of a company by myself from mm. scratch and then it was like well actually at that point I was working in the gaming industry as in casinos and uh, bookies etc and I hated the industry so it was a case of like I don't want to do it in a space that I hate I want to do it for myself and try and figure out an idea that's big enough and interesting enough to go after fantastic it's kind of reassuring to hear a little bit of a theme that's emerging at least from from this story where that confidence boost that you needed has come from external sources when someone who seems so accomplished obviously so smart even back during like your days at school you were like I don't even know I can like list off all the accolades but like captain of this that and the other and yet you know it was that position you had in the gaming company where you were left alone with rolling out this whole thing the investment from the MTV exec getting those kind of external points of validation even Tom Adeyula needs <laughs> to give him a confidence boost. Well, I think I think in many respects that's why I sort of loved school was that school was based on like um, here's a task, do the tasks, and if you do it well, you get validation immediately. So it's like, what's your mark mm, against that against resonates. it? Right? So so it's really quite clear to see whether you're doing well or yeah. not um, in any given activity. And you know, I guess luckily for me, I. I was able to achieve and I was able to succeed at many of those. So each time I was given something, I was like, I, I wanted more. Yeah. Like, I, I was good on the sports side and I was good on the academic side. Um, and then once you come out into 
life that's yeah. that's quite different and difficult <laughs> yeah. um and certainly like i didn't have i you know i got a scholarship and i was bursary funded to a, one of the leading independent schools and then went on to cambridge and um a lot of the people i knew and met had extensive networks so the ability to jump into anything quite easily of like oh you know my dad has um blah 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 so i'm going to do work experience there or my uncle is the head of morgan stanley europe so i can go and do some banking work mm. experience that's not something i had yeah. so and this is all pre-internet days so that idea of like what could you be or what is out there wasn't something that was easily investigatable yeah so to speak so um you know it began that sort of like democratization through information and understanding started to come from the internet but still it's that case of like being able to be something you need to sort of feel your way to it or mm. have that sort of mirror shown back to you as as though it's it's possible mm-hmm. um and i certainly like my c- normal career path would have probably been into banking i did economics at university but i just found it exceptionally boring and um i did an internship at a bank and then i think having been a consultant for a year the internet world was like shiny and exciting and going to work for one, it felt meritocratic like school again. Mm. It was like, you know, a, a startup has 101 problems. If you can come along and take some of those problems away and solve them, you get given more. Mm. Right? So you, you get given more and more to do. And, and that part is interesting and exciting. And it really sort of resonated with how I worked mm. and how I responded to to work yeah that makes a ton of sense I totally resonate I feel like there's quite a lot of parallels in our story in very different ways but it makes total sense so back to Metail so did you start off this business so bear in mind you'd worked in startups I think you said you had five you worked for five other startups before setting up your own company did you start Metail kind of with the end in mind did you know that you were going to build something to sell because you'd also had some exposure to selling companies before in your previous workplaces? Yeah, so I think um, in my sort of journey of working for different startups, I think at one point I'd sort of felt, oh, maybe like where where am I going to be happiest? And I, th- I thought to myself, maybe actually I love film and TV, so I'm going to work in the film industry. I worked for Warner Brothers briefly, um, having worked in startups, and it was the most boring um, uh, part of my oh, career no. journey the total because, opposite of what you'd expect yeah right? because it was a, it was a corporate right it was like we grow six percent year on year um we're not going to do anything else i remember being in a meeting with a whole bunch of executives and sort of saying look we're going to have every song um in our pocket within like five years and everybody going no it will never happen <laughs> but and the key focus being on like piracy and how to clamp down so it was all on wow. like constrain rather than to focus on the consumer mm. and trying to produce things um that would work to their experiences and and sort of generate growth mm. um but you know through that that journey in in film land i ended up meeting somebody who introduced me to my wife so there's a happy ending from that, nice. that now i live vicariously in film and tv <laughs> through her at a safe distance a safe distance <laughs> um but i think like where i'd got to it at, um inspired and it took a year to come up with a, an idea for me tail mm-hmm. was that i i felt that i wanted to build my own thing and work on something but i'd always been somebody who is like a quite a strong uh and constructive critic of mm. ideas and they had to have like you know trying to work out all the reasons why something wouldn't work rather than why something would work and so there was a high bar for me 
for an idea that I would want to commit to. And in part, it had to be like big enough. It had to be an exciting enough area. And there had to be means of like having differential IP or technology to Mm. try and attack it. Um, So in particular, it was like, you know, like the old Google adage of like, work trying to work on something which passes a toothbrush test for me like the clothing industry was that and then for anyone who doesn't know the toothbrush test it's like something you do twice a day so or think about twice a day so in terms of getting dressed it's something you do and think about it's just twice so ingrained a day. in yeah. like your daily lifestyle so if you're involved in something of that nature it's a big enough global opportunity and, th- and, th- and it's the big challenges that I like and that's the thing that I realized mm-hmm. I was like driven by i was driven by understanding systems and disruptive change so the industry per se was not the interesting bit it was uh, what how does the system work Mm. and was there scope for a big change in that system through disruptive innovation in one key element of Mm. it and this felt like oh this could be interesting plus i'd been to um i'd been trying to create the world's first live blackjack baccarat game for inspired and i want to use cameras to recognize cars as they're being dealt live in a casino and um i was in macau having having you know seen the gaming there and felt oh this is going to be such a good idea i need to be able to try and build this um and i was in my hotel room in hong kong i just googled leading expert computer vision and a professor at cambridge was the first on the list and it had his telephone number so there and then i just cold called him nice. from my hotel room i, I got through first time i hadn't even checked what time of day it was <laughs> i was just thinking what was the time zone yeah and, th- and i've never done Love it before it. since used the yeah. hotel phone and i got through and i said look i want to build this gaming system um from scratch how easy would it be and he said yeah no problem come visit me so on return from uh, the Far East, I went up to Cambridge to visit him and he was your typical open, hugely warm-hearted um, professor who showed me all of his research work, wow. um, uh, including going from Anthony Gormley pictures to fully realized 3D models of them. And that's that stuck in my head. And mm. in, in the background, I ended up commissioning one of his ex-PhD students to build a prototype and and it worked. Wow. And then it was, I felt like computer vision was going to be the pathway to solving the online clothing fit problem. So mm-hmm. I thought the clothing fit problem, and at the time my wife had complained a lot about buying stuff online and it, it just being really hard to find stuff mm-hmm. that would suit and fit. And mm. we went on holiday to Vietnam and she had some stuff tailor-made there. And it was like, oh, surely we have to be able to make the shopping process better online maybe this new technology with computer vision might be the way to do that so it was the coming together of those bits of like Mm. serendipity if you like which sort of made me feel like here was an idea which is big enough to go after with a bit of new cutting edge Mm. um innovation that could be applied to an idea which people had been thinking about from for a long time Mm. but which people still hadn't yet solved this is like the essence of an entrepreneur isn't it it's spotting all of those different opportunities, those micro moments, that serendipity, connecting the dots in a way that delivers value to an existing, you know, market need that, you know, if it passes the toothbrush test as well, then even better. So a lot easier said than done. It still feels like extremely innovative. Like it still feels ahead of its time, even now. Yeah, <laughs> I would I would say that by the time I exited, um, we were still five years ahead of the industry. Yeah. The trouble was that the industry was not catching up. So, yeah. and I think that's the, if you like, my big 
realization 11 years after running Metail was that the fashion industry is extremely slow. Um, Which is so ironic given that it's so trend-led and there's the different season. Like in some ways, it's one of the fastest. And I think almost that's why the underlying Mm. supply chain is so slow because uh, things are so fast moving. You just need it by any means necessary and any means possible as quickly as you can. Mm. That's why a lot of supply chains are still run essentially by excel spreadsheets um and stuff you know being shipped over long lead time people drawing stuff on paper mm. like it's very old methods of of mm. delivery this is also why Sheehan is doing so incredibly well as much as it turns my stomach as much yeah. as they discuss me um well they're about are there rumors that they're gonna ipo um, but there's all this stuff about like, if they were, like how much it would go, because it's the most popular visit, it's, it's the most visited e-commerce website in the world now. It's overtaken yes. all of the others because they've cracked that nut on that logistics side of things. Um, but yeah, anyway, back to Metal and how innovative it, it still is even today. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think, I think that's like where we got to in the end was that problem of the industry mm, wasn't catching right. up. And when, once you've run a company for that long, if you're not getting commercial um, uh, lift off, mm. so to speak, then you end up getting caught in a an equity um, constriction mm. whereby you, you, you're not growing out of and into the, your, your valuation and your value. Mm. So we were in a position where I felt that only, there were probably only one of 10 companies could basically exploit our technology to the fullest, the likes of your Amazons, et cetera. Um, and that was where I would have ideally liked to have seen our technology end up. But in the end, we got acquired by one of the big clothing manufacturers. So it ended up being a technology in the background rather than in the foreground for the consumer, but in the background with reference to um, R&D on fit of clothing and presentation of clothing mm-hmm. rather than the visualization of clothing and, and and precipitating a better consumer experience quick fun fact did you know that the annual spend on outsourcing and hiring agencies is 900 billion dollars this year alone that's why i'm so proud to collaborate with 50pros.com a new and fast-growing platform that connects highly vetted agencies with companies looking for their next marketing partner. If you've ever had to source your own agency before, then you'll know unless you've had a good referral, it can be like trying to find a needle in a haystack. That's why with 50pros.com, they provide you with a curated, vetted, no noise directory of only the top 50 firms within 50 categories. Head to the link in the show notes, 50pros.com, and I really hope this helps you get it right with your next marketing partner. All right, let's get back to the show. Getting on to the next chapter then, so the later days of Metail. So what was that whole sale process like for you? You'd kind of seen it at least vicariously through your bosses, other companies that got sold. Now this is the first time it's your baby, you're selling your business. What was that experience like? Yeah, so if I think, if I go back to um, uh, the the guy I met at the top of the gherkin, (laughs) he became my CFO. Like one of his um, big pieces of wisdom was that, you, you need to make sure as a founder that you don't basically just run your company until it's dead, mm. but you make sure you find a home for your company so that you can potentially move on to the next thing and that there is a, a essentially a successful outcome for the business. So don't 
you, you have to actually know and understand when the time is up. And I think for me, it was is about getting to that point of like realization of like, well, we aren't getting the commercial lift off that I, f that I felt we needed. Um, and then making the choice to put the, the company into a position where we gave ourselves 12 months to then precipitate an exit um, and then spend the year on making that happen and doing so taking the company with me so I was I was really quite um, transparent and honest with the team to say look this is where we are and this is what's going to happen over the course of the next 12 months um, and I think in particular I'd remembered reading uh, a segment of and Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, which talks about that notion of like, it's always worse and harder for you than it is for the team. And actually, you'd be surprised at how much they will basically support you through those difficult times and those hard times if you include them with it through the process. And that was very much true in, on this occasion. And it almost felt like in that final year, we were the best that we'd ever been mm. in terms of like... Um, uh, all sort of harmoniously working together so that two plus two equaled five rather than four or three. Um, and, you know, right at the end, I don't know if you know the film Brewster's Millions, it was like that scene in Brewster's Millions at the end. So he, he he's, he's given, I think, $11 million and he has to spend it all within a month to then actually um, gain his full inheritance, which is like many multiples thereof. And at the end of the month, he has to have fully spent all his money, so he has nothing left but the, the shirt on his back that he started the process with. And he goes through the process of, of getting um, uh, an interior designer to design the perfect room, and he keeps saying, no, it's not good enough, not good enough. And on the final day, he goes, ah, this is the room that I would die in. And then they'll go, ah, oh, thank God, and then they clear the room. Right. So and and that's how it felt like at the end of Metal. It's like we'd got to the perfect place of like we were a humming team. We were in, we were um, working fantastically well, and I and there was there was a pathway ahead of us, uh, and then that was the end. Of it, right? so, <laughs> uh, and we and we you know we we went through a process. We had an advisor on board, um, but actually like the prime candidates to buy the business, I um, secured myself we went on journeys to the US we met all of the core players and it was one of those things where it's like oh if only we'd been talking to a lot of these core players several years earlier oh interesting that could have been we could have basically put ourselves into a much stronger position mm -hmm. because actually we did have something for these players and we should have started to build those relationships right it's almost we were so far ahead of a lot of them that it, it was going to take them a while to really understand how mm. to how to get the value out of us because um, um, we had the biggest patent portfolio in the space by a mile. So, like, Amazon had, like, five patents in the uh, fashion technology space. We had over 20. Mm -hmm. um, I think we had more than all of the fashion industry combined with reference to consumer-based technology. Um, so it was that thing of, like, they hadn't got there yet, but mm. if we'd have built a long-term relationship, they would have done. And we had a deal um, uh, on the table ready to, to sort of be signed and go into... Um, a proper DD um, and exclusivity period that collapsed um, uh, right towards the end, and that was that would have been a, a huge deal. We could we could very much see the value that we'd provide to that organisation, um, and that that was probably like my hardest moment I think in that in that sales process. 
Um, the fact that it all it all collapsed at the last minute. Collapsed at the last minute, um, and then off the back of that collapsing, my largest investor, who was like f- funding the business at the time, sort of said that he wouldn't then continue to fund the business, but would buy the business the business so he took advantage of the situation really to then say well i'm going to buy the business instead for um many multiples less so like 10 times less do you know what went on there are you able to um, you able to so share i think i think in the case of the the business that was looking to acquire us i think they'd just been on an acquisition spree and they'd bought a bunch of stuff and then it transpired that some of those acquisitions weren't working and whilst they presented themselves to the world as quite a tech-based business um, you know, they were a floated company. Um, the reality behind the scenes wasn't that. Mm. So they weren't as didn't really have their ducks in a row to onboard fully technically. And because they'd done a few bad things, I think their board had put a kibosh on any any further acquisitions until their existing acquisitions had started to um, uh, produce uh, green 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 shoots, so to speak. So that's why that that sort of sort of fell apart. Is there anything you could have done? with the I think, hindsight now mm, i i think again it's just that thing of like starting the whole press er- says earlier because i think our um our advisors said well they might have dropped out now but usually they come back in just six to eight months because the rationale for doing the deal is still yeah. real mm. it's just circumstances yeah. as means that they couldn't and I think if, if you'd have rolled forward, because I sold my company in July of 2019, if you rolled forward seven months, seven months, you're then into seven, eight months, you're into the beginning of COVID. Oh. And that was then the, the process when you started to see massive liftoff in e-commerce mm. off the back of that. And a lot of these companies' valuations then skyrocketed wow. and they took the opportunity to then be massively acquisitive. So... Um, essentially like that deal collapsed but had we hung on into covid we'd have seen absolutely wow um that come back again and that would have all been all these like sliding no one could have predicted that nobody could have predicted you that. you just wouldn't know you could be so no. much worse off you'd be so much better off you just don't know like hindsight is a wonderful yeah. thing yeah. right hindsight is a wonderful thing and, t- and and everything is always timing so yeah. that's that key thing then about you have to make sure you get an an outcome and with reference to then our biggest investor wanting to buy us, it was like that was the best deal on the table. Yeah. I had to make sure that happened yeah. um, and happened in a way that was good for staff um, and uh, good for shareholders and the mm. best best outcome for and everyone. There's a philosophy that you can only make the best decision with the information you're presented with, the options available to you at that one point in time. Yeah you always have imperfect information so it's really doing the best that you can here and now in that moment you never know and ultimately you just you just want to make sure you try you're trying to make sure you have as many options as possible and Mm. you have some form of leverage Mm. like the most difficult times in all all my parts of my journey with Metel is like when you sort of run out of options or the options start to shrink or if you're trying to do a negotiation on money and you're running out of money, your ability to leverage and, and force the best terms completely shrink away. Yeah. So it's always about how can you try and do things earlier mm. to give yourselves the best best chance of a positive yeah. outcome. That's very great practical advice. There's not a lot you can do when you feel backed into a corner, is there? No. And around this time, I know that something quite personal happened another personal tragedy happened amidst 
all of this other hard stuff as well. Can you talk about yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it'd been you know, 11 years and then to see a deal fall apart, that was a real low moment for me. But then in the in the midst of that, like the same weekend, it it was a case of my my grandmother, who was exceptionally close to, I'd spent all of my summer holidays um, in Norway with my grandparents and she was an exceptionally kind woman. And then she ended up um, passing away. And I think, in a strange way, that was something I sort of needed because it gave perspective to the situation that I was in, that she was way more dear and valuable to me than my company was. Mm. And um, going to her funeral, and I, I sort of ended up doing a, a sort of vision session with a, an exec coach at the same time, going to her funeral and going through this process of like, what is everybody saying about her and her mm. life at that funeral and what's important and what do I want people to be thinking about me at the end of my life and mm. how important that is and getting to a point of being able to, through saying goodbye to my grandmother, giving myself permission to say goodbye to my company mm. um, and understanding that my company doesn't define me and that was a really hard thing to try and understand because for 11 years, Metel was was me it was everything about me I did everything for it um and to get to a point where I was tr starting to consider life without it you know despite having a family and, and all, every, everything else that was a really hard moment and hard process to go through mm. I'm so sorry you went through all that Tom but obviously better outcomes at the end of you made it through it's kind of made you into the person that you are today and it goes to show how all-consuming it can be when you found and run a startup <laughs> like it's yeah. just like your world your life your self-identity I speak to so many entrepreneurs where it's just like they're one and the same thing so when anything bad happens it's so much easier said than done to not take that stuff personally and not let it yeah. hurt you so much so as tragic as it is that you went through that and during this really tough time I love that it helped you get that perspective in that really kind of dark moment so moving on, so post Metail, so I know that you also, was it around this time that you had an experience that really um, taught you how to appreciate your health? I know you're very passionate about founder health, self-care. Was this all kind of another outcome of these dark days for you? Yeah, I think, I think actually it took me a while to sort of understand about my own care really. So I think, mm. I think, Coming out of Metail, like 2000, yeah, July 2019, I, I thought, the weird thing is I'd, I'd worked really hard to make it happen as fast as possible in the best way possible, made sure that the, the staff that stayed on with the company were really well looked after mm. um, by the acquirer and that they got good retention bonuses. It, everybody had information all the way through it. And I was like, right, I'm going to leave anger and grief until after the process. I've just got to keep my head down and get through this. Mm -hmm. um, I had a very difficult lawyer on the other side who was like, oh, sorry, I just had to keep the rage in. Keep the rage in. <laughs> um, Is there a special place in hell yeah, for, for yeah, this oh lawyer? <laughs> yeah, Clifford Chance, like awful, awful. <laughs> um, name and shame. <laughs> yeah, um, but come the other side, actually, all I had was like, relief actually and um actually I wasn't interested in those those um emotions and mm. I was like right I'm out the other side um and I was 
then sort of focus on trying to do stuff for me like okay i'm going to do a bit of fitness and this that and the other and and spend some time like catching up with people i haven't caught up with um and then actually like within two months then my father-in-law died um and uh that you know my wife was in a really difficult place and i i felt actually really quite lucky to have been clean out of the business because mm. it was like well i owe you I would, don't worry about family. I would, I'll take care of that as as that whole um, process was going on. Mm. Um, and then a few months after that, then it was like the beginning of COVID and it was like, well, I owe you 11 years. So we've got two girls. It's like, well, homeschooling and looking, I, I will manage that because mm. my wife was working at that point. She was running the script team for the TV show, The Crown. So it was like, she was like Not the busy. Crown. <laughs> no, the, the Crown, the, um, yeah. So it's like the royal family. It's yeah. like, and she's, and she's a like, you know, stout Republican. So it's like, it's quite, it's quite <laughs> interesting um, to hear the voices coming through the computer of like, oh, there's Prince, Prince Charles voice. Okay. And uh, Margaret Thatcher. Um, okay. Um, That's funny. So, uh, so it was like, I felt like, I felt lucky to be in the position to sort mm. of give back um and then at the end of 2020 i was thinking okay now i can start to think about like do i start something again and then i got about a terrible headaches and i couldn't get out of bed for 10 days um and the like i was the, the only thing that worked from medication perspective was beta blockers and i started to reevaluate mm. like actually what had been my situation then it was like well actually in the last year of running my company i was probably taking 30 ibuprofen a month wow. to get through the month it's like an ibuprofen a day pretty much and wow and that over i was in denial over that just on probably that. several years I would several say. years i'd say yeah and what? i i'd also suffered from central serous retinopathy which is um loss of focal vision in my left eye from uh retinal fluid leakage because of too much cortisol from too much adrenaline oh my god so that i had that as well like so wow clearly like i was just in denial and just carrying on i, I just work on through wow and just do whatever to to get through yeah and i think then me like saying oh I'll, I'll go back and i'll start something i think my body was just like no. mm -mm. <laughs> um, God, i'm not thoughts. happy with this uh, so that's probably what led to the like, um, and then the only thing that worked were beta blockers, which massively reduced my energy. Wow. So effectively beta blockers reduce your heart rate and sort of turn off your adrenaline. So I became 70% myself, I think. Wow. I sort of like end of my day would be like at eight o'clock pretty mm. much and difficult to get up, up in the morning, but that kept the headaches at bay and I would get a breakthrough headache every three weeks. But like the difference between pre oh. and post this headache attack was that pre the attack, it'd be like, I might get a headache every so often. But post the attack, it was like the headache was constant, just did not go away. It was like having a dragon permanently on your head wow. and it was like in, in waves of strength. Um, and so that was like a case of like, oh, okay, maybe my body's telling me not to go back into something full bore. But during this period, I still co-founded a couple of non-profits and joined various boards and i was still busy mm. it was just like actually advisory is okay because you just give advice and you leave it's mm. not the same as pushing the boulder up yeah, the hill sure. you push the boulder up the hill you need 100 wow. percent so you. what are the big changes that you've made in your life now then since that so i mean I, tr I tried lots of different things i had a coach for a while like trying to like force myself back on 
the horse and my coach was like oh I think you just need to get well <laughs> um, I don't think there's anything to, with regards to how you think about work I think it's just your know, health needs to be sorted out um, so I've got a different regime in terms of like medical regime so there's like I take an in, a monthly injection and I take lower dose beta blockers so I'm probably like 90-95% myself um, I would say um, and sort of I would also I think through that forced time off I've got a much more harmonious relationship with how I put family first and the other activities and how I think about work with reference to um you know I don't have to do everything mm. like in the sense of like my value can be in the top bit and other people can do the bits below that mm. whereas I'd say I would and almost one of like my superpowers I'd always thought my problem was I was a jack of all trades master of none but mm. I realized actually in that was a superpower because it's mm. like I could do everything mm. I could do everybody's job mm. um and uh, then it was a case of like trying to hire people as you got further on in the company who were better than you in each of those yeah. areas uh, and then delegating accordingly but mm. I would do I would do as much and I could dive in and I would dive in if something was like f you know falling behind and roll mm. my sleeves up and, and get involved and I'd always be like that and I would always stupidly put myself last so mm. you know I, I could go days without having lunch and um like late dinner and, and all, all of those sort of things of like well i've just i'll, I'll fit the meeting into where i would have and should have had mm. lunch time so mm. it's like yeah. those things where you're just putting yourself last whereas i'm trying to be better at, mm. at fitting them around i still fall into bad habits like I, recently i was like oh i haven't had lunch today that's <laughs> not good behavior that's not what i'm supposed to do but i'm a lot better at sort of managing family and my time and trying to give myself permission to have off moments and yeah and sort of like you know working in in bursts yeah. and out and bursts and out okay that's really good to know it's such a mental th i mean it sounds so obvious but taking care of yourself physically is much more a mental task just just in terms of like allowing yourself yeah to not be put last and booking in a lunch slot for you to actually eat instead of the meeting or not rolling up your sleeves and getting stuck into everything, even though that's what you're used to and you know, you're graded at. It's that, it's that mindset shift that comes first before all those practical bits and bobs of like good nutrition and sleep yeah. and everything else, right? Well, I'm really glad you've come out the other side and you're kind of establishing some good, healthy um, kind of habits. Uh, as we kind of near the end of the interview, I know that you're doing some really impactful projects at the moment. Obviously you mentioned as part of your intro, you're the co-founder of Capital Angel Network and Extend Ventures. So would you like to tell us a little bit more about what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, so I think if you like, I'm sort of involved in all the areas where I'm trying to solve problems for myself and all the <laughs> interest areas in terms of like progressive societal and climate related change. So um, Extend Ventures is around trying to diversify access to finance. So it's like um, off the back of, in fact, actually, after I'd sold my company that year, I was at a conference um, and I ran a session on difficult founder stories. So mm. a, a space for people to be vulnerable around um, their difficulties, how they're struggling, you know, called the struggle, struggling through the process of running a startup. So it's not about the, the cool stories, it's about the terrible stories, the tragedies. Um, and one um, uh, 
black female founder talked about how she felt she couldn't raise any money and that she was had got to the point where she felt she needed to hire a white male CEO mm. to run her business otherwise she couldn't because there was no money out there and people would say that they hire in hire uh, invest in the best people and they the truth is they don't so mm. we met after that and um discussed what were potential ways of solving that i think her focus was on trying to set up a fund to invest in diverse founders um and looking around these this ecosystem it was clear that a lot of these diverse funds were just failing to raise so they were caught in the catch-22 of like come back when you've shown success but i can't come back when i've shown success because i won't I, nobody's mm. giving money to to, Pass it to, to try and egg. exactly yeah. so um it was like well there's no point being another fund to fail to raise money so what was a thing we can do and it felt like the thing that we could do to help everybody and move the whole s system so again i love systems was try and get the data on um who received funding from an ethnicity gender and socioeconomic proxy we use there was university background perspective um and it felt again linking into computer vision which is what i'd focused on at Metail. it was like well ethnicity is a solvable problem like, whilst ethnicity is a self-determined categorization in a funding conversation it's the perception of the person with the money that matters if there's going to be a bias so we can then use that to to develop perceived ethnicity for founders and uh, we can use computer vision based um, uh, algorithms to do an 80 20 to the problem so 80 percent we can do on the algorithm then the remaining 20 percent is a small number problem from a manual perspective so we can we can solve that so we looked at 10 years worth of data 2009 2019 and we we're able to show indeed that there'd only been one black woman who had raised over a million pounds in, yep, in that 10 year period Reed. yeah exactly so we we her um in this case, Erica, my co-founder of Extend Ventures, experience was not um, uh, an anomaly. It mm. was actually the norm. And I think since we've produced that report, um, at least 10 um, raised over a million in one year. So wow. the, the ability to start generating change, I think, is is there. And we're, doing, we're launching the next version of our report soon. Um, and subsequently, it's sort of like looking at a lot of these spaces now to break them up. So Capital Angel Network is is, is an attempt then to look at where are their existing networks. So independent schools have strong alumni um, uh, systems. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the one that I went to, um, where I got scholarship from bursary, they've got like 9,000 on their database, right? So one school, it, it's more than 500 years old. Mm. But most state schools these days are academies, so therefore they're only 10 years old. So they don't have the depth of Just like these. access to the network. Yeah, so the pathways yeah. aren't there. So how can you take those two type of entities and squish them together and create the warm pathways mm. from the state schools into um, the independent school. So this is like, a, again, another sort of 10, 20, 30 year journey of, of trying to break down these barriers and create a, a virtuous circle where um, these are open based networks that people can basically pitch into and raise mm. money. And then the, the, the companies should be companies which are positive for society and Im angel investors should be donating a percentage of proceeds back into the system um, to, to hopefully generate more money. So mm -hmm. it should be, create a virtuous circle. Yeah. And then in terms of the investments and companies I support, they're all sort of in the climate space, health and well-being, 
um, future of work and underrepresented spaces. So trying to basically generate a better overarching system for founders where there's equity and equality across the system. Congratulations, Tom. It sounds like you're really having such a positive impact here and these are all much needed initiatives and they're actually having a measurable impact, which is just fantastic. And I think they all came out of that finishing Metel and then doing the process which I'd done for Metel but never done for myself, which mm. is like, what are my values and what's mm. my mission? And that being separate to the company, but it's actually like, it's all my values are around mm. all the things that I've now started to get involved in. Amazing. So this is now a result of some of that deeper soul searching for you, which Indeed. is fantastic. So penultimate question, I'm just really curious to ask, now that you are advising, invested in a number of different companies and with your different projects at the moment, are there any trends, patterns, whether it's just like the top one to three things that you are noticing, regardless of founder or sector, but some of, are there any kind of problems that keep coming up or where entrepreneurs maybe keep stumbling over the same thing? Yeah, so I think we, we've we definitely seen, so since I um, became a founder, there's been, been this massive trend towards venture. And as founders come through, this it's almost like overarching noise of venture funding is the only type of funding for your business. So people are, are shaping the companies that they're presenting to be venture style businesses. When a lot of the time when I'm like then digging in deeper with people, it's like this would, could and should be a great business, but it's not a venture business. And, and there's nothing wrong with and there's that. Nothing wrong like with it's that. okay. Yeah, it's going to be a fantastic <laughs> business, but don't try and create something which needs to grow at you know ten times year on year because you'll destroy both you and the business. And there's a, a great thing here, but it's not that shape and that and like this needs to be reformed. And we need to have a a more equalized view of the types of businesses and the flow of, of businesses. Cause that's something actually I really thought about hard when I started Metail, which is like that spectrum of lifestyle business to like mega funded business. Where, where was I going to be on that, mm. that, that um, spectrum? And was I comfortable with that? And I think a lot of those hard decisions and choices need to be made early and people need to actually think harder and properly about that flow. I saw, I saw one very recently where um, the founder was talking about, Oh yeah, we're going to, raise now 2 million and then series A, we're going to do 10 million in, in a year's time. And I was like, whoa, whoa wait one, one second. What you're telling me that you figured out from the market and that you found some form of product market fit is showcasing to me that that business that you're talking about, actually you probably don't need to raise any money mm. because that will be like a deal based profitable day one style journey without other people without other people yeah and it's like mm. if tr like the focus should be on how mm. do i maintain control and how do i minimize the number of other voices mm. like interfering with what i'm trying to create tom i feel like that is so necessary to say in this day and age because that has been so overly glamorized like the whole venture backed scale up style of business so it's interesting to you say that okay final question the best lessons can often come from the biggest tragedies. We have covered some of your darker days, some of these really horrific things that have happened in your career. What has, has there been anything in particular that's really stood out to you that's taught you an unforgettable lesson? I think all of the tragedies are always related to, and all of the time spent is always around people. 
um, and getting people wrong um, for various different reasons. I think like in the early part of the journey, I always think about my journey of Mito. I was like, I was really good at the beginning. I was really good at the end. And there was a horrible period in the middle where I was actually just like treading water and I wasn't moving the company at the speed it needed to in the right way and hiring the right people. Um, and I think I accumulated too many people who were too similar in the early days. And mm. that was like really, therefore they didn't gel or work together. Um, and like that understanding of what a team should look like and the complementary set of skills, it took a while to, to learn that and get that right. Mm. Um, and in the corollary of that really was that then um, like my CTO coming in, he was like, he'd read every management book going and he would come in um, and initially he was like, right, we're going to use this management structure. And then people didn't like quite work with that management structure. So sometimes you have the processes that don't work with the people mm. and then you have the people that don't work mm. with the process. So it's like, how do you, how do you blend and get the right mix mm. is super important. Mm. So hiring and thinking about complementary skill sets is like a really big, important lesson. I think I got certainly towards the towards the end of how do you how do you how do you hire for teams mm. and how do you also make processes work for the people that you've got so you know it can be really easy to think oh okrs right yeah everybody's using that that's the best thing we need to to use that and it's like well is, does, is that appropriate for us the sort of people we've got the stage that we are mm. and the problems we're trying to solve maybe actually we need a bit more control we need to do things like like this instead yeah. so that is is hugely important and i certainly find especially that thing about you know almost hiring the wrong people um first time founders often like they're really trying hard to make themselves sound like they they know what they're doing and it's like actually what i want to hear is that you don't know what you're doing so that mm. i can understand where your weaknesses are mm. and therefore how can we build the right set of people around you to make I to give this that. the biggest chance yeah. of success it's like the classic oh no we have no competitors is like oh <laughs> never never say that in a yeah. pitch deck guys. Yes. tom that's really refreshing that's really great to hear and i just want to very quickly underscore what you're saying about kind of okrs and kpis like i'm a big fan of like process and organization everything else but also as a co-founder of a creative business the truth is is that you're not going to get these amazing creative individuals to suddenly kind of work to these like rigid SOPs. So it's great to hear that, you know, you're not doing anything wrong. It's just, you know, what works for your business. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. I feel like we could talk for many, many more hours, but I think we need to leave it there. And thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. You learned something new and you took away something practical to apply to your own business journey. Please hit that subscribe button. It really helps us out and tune in next time. Thank you.